Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. At the airport, my mother cut into my reverie by referring to my trip as a love boat tour. What exactly does that mean? I asked. Parents send kid to find wife. This program features the work of 2016 writer Shin Yi Pai. Curator Karen Finneyfrock spoke with her in an interview. Your project for Jack Straw is a collection of essays. Tell me about it. So I've been writing about my relationship to Taiwanese identity for a long time. And a couple years ago, I started writing these personal essays that were a longer form to help me sort of make sense of some of the experiences that I've had of identity and culture. And so the collection that I'm trying to write, I've called it Firstborn Son. I began writing um, some of the pieces in the collection around the time that um, I gave birth to my first child, who happens to be a boy. And in my own family of origin, I am the youngest daughter. I do have an elder brother. But within my family, there were often times where I felt like I was put in a position where I had to default to a different gender role and sort of take on this firstborn son kind of role. So the firstborn son is traditionally uh, a role that is privileged and has a high status in Chinese, Taiwanese families because they receive a lot of um, the resources and the privileges of being a boy, being the firstborn. It's a very treasured sort of role, whereas daughters occupy a very different kind of status. And I think that you know, growing up in a family where I was thinking about these issues of gender and making sense of that and then at times sort of switching roles, that this particular project is one for me that explores um, cultural roles, gender roles, and my relationship to family in terms of my relationship with my father, the patriarch in my family, as well as my relationship to my son. I feel that it has a lot to do with Stepping out of a role which has traditionally been one maybe of bearing witness to the experiences of others to maybe claim my experience and voice in a different way. Why do you think you were able to explore those themes in a different, or I think you mentioned deeper way, through essay than you were through poems? So I think in poetry, for me, uh, there is a temptation or maybe a tendency to know that because the the language and the craft can be a bit more abstract and formless, that it's easy to be elusive and to bury a narrative or a topic or experience. But I think in the case of this particular material, because the emotional and cultural baggage around these topics was so dense that it just required a different form to sort of unpack it all. At the same time, now as I'm going back and revising some of these early prose pieces, I'm finding that my tendency is to use some of that poetic training to to revise in terms of restructuring things more organically and thinking more about associative linkages versus how you transition from one theme or topic to another in prose. What types of research did you do for this book of essays? 
So this book of essays is really something that I've been working on for a long, long time. I, I didn't start writing it until the last few years, but really I've been working on it in my head since 1998. So in 1998, I took my first trip to my parents' native land, Taiwan, and have over the last 15 years gone back to my parents' country on four different occasions. And each time it's getting a little more or different perspective or insight into the history and the culture and the experiences of the Taiwanese people as a whole, as well as my family, my father's family within this sort of experience. So the kind of research that I've done have been well, traveling with my family to some degree, but I've also gone back on my own a couple times and just spent time at historic sites of trauma and consciousness, I think you would say. Um, you know, the research is just the experiences I've had over time and um, the discoveries that I've made throughout these different trips and the stories that I've heard in interviewing and talking to my different relatives and cousins. And on the most recent trip that I took in 2012, it's very intentional about wanting to visit a couple of particular sites of historic trauma. And so uh, my father and I traveled to the place where he was stationed in the army, this island called Matsu. And I took him to Green Island, which is a place where political prisoners were sent away under martial law to this island for decades to do hard labor, basically. And the prison has been transformed into a memorial site now where you can actually um, self-tour and walk through these spaces. Tell me a little bit more about your practice or your process. How do you write? Where do you write? My practice has changed a lot in the last few years because I have a young child at home. So my practice now, I think, is often sketching out notes and ideas for poems or essays and um, coming back to them at some other time when I have an interrupted stretch of a few hours to be able to sort of dig in. And sometimes poems still come to me in a flash and are written very quickly, like in, I don't know, half an hour or an hour. I have, I think, for the last couple of years really been trying to figure out how to reintegrate my practice into my work as an artist and this new identity as a mother or parent that very much shapes and informs the work that I do. I feel in some ways like the urgency to go back to and work out the writing around my family of origin has in some ways to do with that I'm working on this new identity and integrating stuff now. And so it's it's needing to kind of pull and combine all of that together. But I don't think I would have felt that urgency as much if my like the work of parenting and being in that space of being like a new mother is often so lonely and isolating. And the work of writing and art making can likewise sort of ride up or mash up against that in, in a way too because it is a very isolated practice. And I think that some of what I've been trying to figure out has been around how to practice in a new way and to find my new community of practice as, as a mother so, for instance, the way that some of that played out was that I do some work with On the Boards here in Seattle, and I proposed to them to curate a couple of programs for or related to artists who are in that space of new parenting. So last year what we did was we invited this artist, Dawn Cerny, who had herself become a, a new mother. She did this performance piece about the sort of 
challenges and joys and ups and downs of becoming a mother. And I invited a group of artists who are new parents here in Seattle to respond to that work. So they had a follow-up studio maybe three or four months out from Don's program that was then really focused towards them creating new generative work that could allow them to explore those themes within the context of their own lives and, and having children. I think that some of my work now, too, it isn't simply about um, that struggle of my own writing process, but finding the ways to create the spaces where the conversations that need to happen, at least for me, around these changes and shifts can then, I think, support the other aspects of being a writer, which are about exchanging energy with a community or with others, whether it's through sharing your work through a reading or the book, you know, the the writing on the page, just that aspect of having a a full identity of, of being an artist and what that looks like. Now we'll hear a selection from Shin Yi's live reading. I'm doing something different tonight than I usually do. I'm known principally as a poet, but I'm going to read a personal essay that I've never shared before in public. The 23 Rapids of the Shikwilan. My parents pitched the trip as an opportunity to go home and experience the motherland with other American-born Chinese. That year, the Taiwanese Tourism Board ran a campaign with the slogan, Taiwan, Touch Your Heart, presenting an image of Taiwan that could deepen a sense of affection for the island nation. By experiencing the country's rugged landscape, aboriginal tribes, and long soaks in natural hot springs, I'd never wish to return to Chicago. As a 23-year-old adult, I'd never made the trip back, hoping year after year for the opportunity to accompany one of my parents home. With only the most basic of Taiwanese language skills, I needed an interpreter to navigate the experience, someone who could translate for me as I had translated English for my mom as I was growing up. But instead of volunteering to travel with me, my parents signed me up for a route-searching tour. My older brother Edwin loved playing up his experiences of having gone home. My mother's U.S. visa had expired shortly after she gave birth to him, and she was forced to leave the country. My father, who considered childcare women's work, let them go. He didn't know how to change a diaper, mix formula, or bottle feed a baby, and knew that his child would be better off in Taiwan. It would free him up to focus on his coursework at Northeast Missouri State and his jobs cleaning the college president's house and working at the country club. My father remembers asking his friend Freddie to drive them to the airport in St. Louis. He wept with grief at seeing my mother and brother board the flight. When the plane took off, he fainted. His friend picked him up and carried him back to his car. Edwin slept through most of his three-month stay in Qingzhui, suffering mosquito bites all over his body and diaper rash from the summer heat. But in his recounting, he presents an ironclad case for having been there, and therefore never needing to go back. In courtship with Asian-American women, he code-switches effortlessly, using both his Chinese and American names, narrating his experiences as a dutiful son who has achieved his parents' dream of becoming a medical doctor, passing himself off as the real thing. I thought little of romance myself. In a fresh state of grief after the end of a relationship, I found myself distracted. 
My former lover would be in Japan while I'd be in Taiwan. And though my days following the tour would be over full with visiting family, I longed to make the short flight to Kyoto to meet on neutral terrain. At the airport, my mother cut into my reverie by referring to my trip as a love boat tour. What exactly does that mean? I asked. Parents send kid to find wife. My father grunted, neither confirming nor denying the information, and mumbled something about the tour being organized by the chairman of Taiwan's Democratic Progressive Party. With a shove into the security line, my parents sent me packing. In Taipei, I joined the tour group and boarded a bus with roughly 20 other American-born Chinese. I'd grown up in Riverside, California, far from any Asian-American community, and hadn't been surrounded by so many Asian faces since attending Mandarin classes on Saturday as a kid. My teacher and classmates had made fun of me for my inability to understand Mandarin. Ethnically, we were the same, Chinese. But culturally and linguistically, we were different. I eventually dropped out of the language immersion program, harboring a deep hostility towards other Asians, judging them as harshly as I felt judged. It was with this mindset that I embarked on the tour. My group included two Mikes, two Steves, a Tony, Jennifer, Irene, Sean, Glenna, Charmy, Ken, Boeing, Angel, Peter, Isho, and myself. Two physicians from San Diego, doctors Mr. and Mrs. Yu, led the trip with their adult children, Elaine and Tim, in tow. Two years into medical school, Tim followed in his parents' footsteps. He was considered to be one of the more eligible bachelors around, and I watched as more than one girl jockeyed for a place next to him on the bus. As night fell, our coach wove through mountain roads to arrive at an unscheduled stop on our itinerary, a thickly wooded site set away from the road. The group decamped from the bus and shivered in heavy rain as Ms. Fan, Chairman Lin's wife, and one of our hosts delivered an emotional speech in Taiwanese. The group stood in silence, confused by her tears in our unfamiliar setting. Someone finally translated, We stood at the memorial gravesite of Chairman Lin's family. His mother and seven-year-old twin daughters had been stabbed to death in a political assassination motivated by his involvement with the democratic movement. We stood where they had been buried. Our first order of business was to pay our respects to those who had come before us. We did so by queuing up for a group photo during a downpour. Our tour bus continued on to Elon, headquarters of the chairman's family foundation. When we arrived, the chairman's young aides ushered us into a meeting room and screened a historical documentary. Tug of War focused on the Taiwanese people's uprising against Chiang Kai-shek's KMT government, which took control of the island when the Japanese ceded control of Taiwan after the Second World War. In public memory, the brutality of the KMT's regime is remembered by the events of February 28, 1947, a day when Chinese soldiers mounted a concerted effort to end Taiwanese dissidents by embarking on a campaign to purge 20,000 Taiwanese intellectuals and community leaders over a period of several weeks. Executions took place in public, but soldiers came looking for fathers, uncles, and grandfathers who disappeared in the middle of the night. Wives and mothers were left to fend for families as soldiers seized their homes. The KMT also maintained an active blacklist for decades. If your name appeared on that list, you remained a target. The propaganda film connected enough of the dots. Over the years, I'd heard differing accounts of my father's reasons for leaving Taiwan. 
In most stories, he wanted to put his English language skills to use and satisfy a sense of curiosity about the world. He left to pursue graduate school and never returned home. Other times, it was to give his unborn children a better shot at life. But one other tale stood out, a story that I'd only overheard parts of on rare occasions. In this story, my father got into trouble and left to escape imprisonment. I avoided asking too many questions. I knew my father felt a terrible guilt for never having returned to see his parents before they died. Though we struggled financially, there were other reasons for not going back. Martial law ended in 1987, but a legacy of terror scarred those who came of age during the KMT's occupation. This trauma was confirmed by stories like Chairman Lin's, who lost his mother and children on the anniversary of February 28th. As the film ended, our group tried to make sense of what we'd seen. Irene spoke of her father's apathy towards voting in America. In anticipation of every election, her dad flew home to Taiwan to cast his vote. Peter talked about his father's conversion to Christianity following the 228 attacks. Rounded up and tortured for months before being released, he found God, moved to Indiana, and became a Presbyterian minister. I thought about my parents' decision to teach me Taiwanese, the intimate language of the family, in quiet protest of the language of the colonial powers. Chairman Lin's political aides nodded their heads as we shared, hoping they'd engaged our loyalties in a major election year for the opposition party. Our orientation complete, we were free to explore. Over the next 10 days, we traveled to an opera village where we put on historical costumes and reenacted dramatic scenes. At Taroka Gorge, we crossed ancient wooden footbridges to view scenic waterfalls. We rode the train through mountainous terrain to see how the imported oolong tea we drink in America is farmed and processed. Our journey finally culminated on the banks of the Shikwalan River. I'd never set foot in an inflatable raft, but circumstances dictated that in order to maintain group harmony, I had to defer to my guides. I put up a fight, even as everyone around me tied on orange life vests. I'm a terrible swimmer. I didn't get the memo about bringing a bathing suit. I'm pretty sure I never signed a waiver agreeing to participate in river rafting. I declared that I'd be happy hanging out on the bus. I'll see you at the bottom of the river in a few hours. But my expression of dissent threatened group cohesion. This is a team-building activity. It's not safe on the bus. You'll be alone with the driver. The youths put on cheerful faces but seem less than enthusiastic, weighing perhaps the different kinds of liability. Leaving me alone with the male bus driver introduced the possibility of events beyond their control. I could be sexually assaulted by a stranger. And on the other hand, I could drown on the whitewater tour. In the end, they steered me towards what seemed logical. I climbed aboard a raft with Tony Liu. Someone handed me a wooden paddle, which I tepidly placed into the water. We pushed off from the shore, and several people jumped into navigating. Our raft floated for a long, gentle stretch until the river quickened. The raft madly zigzagged in the current until slamming into a jagged rock. I fell out of the raft on impact. Tony reached one arm into the water and yanked me back on board by the straps of my life vest. Tony was one of the few individuals with whom I felt some sense of affinity. He was finishing his degree at UC Berkeley and preparing to move home to New York to study immigration law. 
His devotion to working with immigrant communities reminded me of my dad's passion for advocacy. My father helped recently arrived Taiwanese immigrants with their paperwork and served as an interpreter for the legal system. Tony's mom supported her sons by running a small business in Queens. Throughout my childhood, my parents had run a series of homegrown businesses, ranging from a gift store in downtown San Bernardino to an import business for Commodore computer parts and a shiitake mushroom farm, started with a man that my father once helped in court. Tony's mother owned a wedding dress shop. When he disclosed this information, I tried to picture whether her store carried red chipao gowns or white floor-length dresses with lace bodices and shiny fabrics, veils, costumes catering to Western taste. I wondered if as a kid, Tony had spent endless hours at the store while his mother met with customers, how girls with romantic intentions would inevitably form ideas upon learning about his mother's trade. But instead of falling in love with the guy who had just rescued me from drowning, I turned away from a storybook ending. The experiences of the past 10 days had been so carefully curated as to create a particular sense of Taiwanese identity. Despite my simultaneous feelings of horror and empathy towards the past and lives that I could never touch, I couldn't fully connect my parents' stories to the historical trauma that their nation had suffered. My own shock occurred in abandoning the safety of the raft to plunge beneath the waterline. I glimpsed the identities that my parents had constructed begin to dissolve before my eyes. It would take me a lifetime to make sense of their experiences and to sort that out from my own truth, to think of Taiwan as home and my place both within and outside of it. From her raft, Dr. Mrs. Yu shouted at me over her portable megaphone, stay in the boat. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2016 curator of this program is Karen Finneyfrock. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Daniel Gunther and Levi Fuller. Recording engineers are Steve DeTori, Daniel Gunther, Mo Preventure, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keene, and executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Seattle Jazz Composers Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>